Hey everyone, Greg here. Today's episode of the Eater Upsell is presented by MailChimp. 14 million people use MailChimp to connect with their customers, market their products, and grow their e-commerce business every day. MailChimp, send better email, sell more stuff. On today's episode of the Eater Upsell, we have Fuchsia Dunlop, the cookbook author behind a number of books about Chinese cookery. She is like a total expert on the subject. She's a really fun person to talk to. She's had a lot of experience traveling and cooking in different kitchens and learning from different people and kind of fusing it all together and turning it around. And she has a cool British accent. Oh my God, her accent's like amazing. She's just one of those kind of people where you just want to keep talking to her uh, because she's so cool. Stay tuned for that. But before we get into talking to Fuchsia Dunlop. Greg, it's the holiday season. It is. Maybe like AP Dan can insert a jingle bell sound effect here. I like that people like the holidays. I find that with each passing year, I become more indifferent to it. But I like that other people like it. I'll put it that way. Do you know what I don't like about the holidays? What's that? I don't like pie. That's one of the holiday things I'm indifferent to. But I'm surprised to hear that. Um, I would think that you would you would maybe be a pie enthusiast, actually. I am not a pie enthusiast. Actually, I mean, I, I also this is also a thing I dislike about summer which is also when pies occur. Yeah. I guess really every season is pie season, so I'm I'm in a constant state of mild dissatisfaction. You know, the eternal cake versus pie debate, it's just like always cake for me. But even more than that, I don't even really like sweets that much. I mean, I will eat them if they are placed in front of me, but I would almost always rather have another bite of something savory. To know, I love knowing that. And I can't believe I actually didn't know that about you. Maybe you've mentioned it before, but you know, I'm not a sweets person either. So I guess it makes sense that we were both, you know, hosting this, this little podcast here. Best buds forever. And, you know, I assumed you didn't like pie because, or dessert pies, because I guess there's the wide world of savory pie out there. But like, if you had to eat pie, Mm -hmm. what are your top five best pies? I would say if I was going to eat pie, um, I would go for some kind of red berry pie, not a cherry, like a a a strawberry, a Marion berry, or as you find sometimes on the West Coast, an Alala berry pie. You are just saying fake words. No, that's nope. Those are real berries and they're kind of like squishy berry pies, I think. I don't want to fuck with that cream banana bullshit. Oh, no, those are the only good pies. Custard pies are are, are the king of pies. Oh, what? No. Oh, my I God, was... no, because I don't like cooked fruits. So That's right. I you don't like cooked all fruits. Okay. A cu- like a mousse pie or a custard pie oh, yeah, okay. or a pudding pie, which I guess are basically just custard pies. Pudding pie is marginally pie, I'd say. It's more like pudding with a crust on it. Um, which, like... But that's, that's what a pie is, right? Well, now that you mentioned that, I guess that's true. Okay, so... What are your pie rankings then as someone who doesn't really like pie? Okay, so my I'm going to I'm going to go from bottom to top from 5 to 1. Okay. Like Letterman style. So my mm-hmm. number 5 top pie is a classic chocolate pudding pie. Oh yeah. Like preferably mm-hmm. made by someone's mom in the 1970s. Any flourishes on top? Any funny bullshit up there? Dollop of whipped cream, maybe some like chocolate shavings if we're feeling fancy. Chocolate shavings. Like, oof. Is it the 90s or something with those chocolate shavings. Okay, so love it. Number four. Number four, classic pumpkin pie, small dollop of whipped cream. Mm-hmm. No fuss, no muss. Just fresh whipped cream or from the can? I, You know, they're both pretty good. They're, I'm, I'm they're happy with either good. one. I've never had like a bad squirt of canned whipped cream. You no, know? I totally respect the ready whip. I mean, Cool Whip is garbage and we should not talk about it. But if we're talking like true, like aerated cream product, I'm very happy with something from a can. What am I on? Three? Or- yeah, three. Okay. Number three. Lemon meringue. Okay. Except ever since my childhood, I have been deeply disappointed that the meringue tastes like meringue and not by marshmallow. Like it should be sweet and instead it's sort of flavorless. And that's, it's all, it's all visual and zero taste and, and it's yeah. a, a huge disappointment. I, I can't even in my mind remember what meringue tastes like because I've had it so few times and never order it. Um, What's what's number two? Number two is, is a chess pie, which oh. is basically just like sugar in a crust. I don't, is that like a, like, is that what? Momofuku's crack pie is kind of imitating. Yeah, it's they're basically like big... the exact same thing. So what okay, is... guess my number but wait, one. Wait, wait, what is the chess pie though? Like, what is? It's just sugar it's and sugar and eggs in a pie crust. Okay, 
It's like pecan pie without the pecans on top. Oh, okay. But less molasses. Anyway, yeah, no, I, w- I want to see if you can get in my head for my number one because I will, I will warn you that it is a twist. Well, I was going to say for number one, it is the slightly exotic, often refreshing, and fairly light, and I, I just think usually delightful, especially when it's made authentically, key lime pie. No. No, oh, wow, it's not. Okay. But that is a good guess. Not it's a bad a, one, right? It's a custard pie. No, no, but it is not a key lime pie. Do you know what it is? No, I don't. It's a Boston cream pie. Oh, gosh. Do you know the mind-blowing twist here? What's that? It's not a pie? It's not a pie. It's a cake. Motherfucker. <laughs> okay, so that's, I don't know. That's, that's, a, that's a pretty bizarre criteria you have there. So what? how is it not a pie? And well, Okay, what's in it, first of all? I don't think I've ever, ever actually had it before. A Boston cream pie is just a plain sponge cake that has been sliced in half horizontally as if it's a layer cake filled with custardy pastry cream and topped with melted chocolate. That is literally all it is. It is cake. Oh. There is nothing about it that is pie. So... That's your favorite pie because it has pie in the name of it, but but it's not a pie. Boston cream pie, king of pies, not actually a pie, and yet the best pie. And now, Greg and I are going to talk to Fuchsia Dunlop. When you travel, do you seek out Chinese restaurants? Um, I do to an extent, but I have to say that the first time I visited New York was on the publication of my first book, Land of Plenty, and um, it was my first visit to the United States at all, and I was dying to go and eat, you know, pancakes and bacon and maple syrup and burgers and American stuff, and um, everyone I met insisted on taking me to Sichuanese restaurants, so I think I went to every Sichuanese restaurant in Manhattan at that time. (laughs) My gosh. Sichuanese food is tremendous in New York right now. It is the the ascendant Chinese cuisine. Like Greg is a great aficionado of Manhattan Szechuan restaurants. I'd say an enthusiast more than an aficionado. How do you gauge the, the New York Szechuan scene? Well, I mean, I think it's the same. We've felt the same effect in London, really, which is that Szechuanese cooking has been so popular in mainland China for the last sort of 10 years or so. And that's now rippled out into overseas Chinese communities and through mm-hmm. them to Westerners, you know, because people from China now, a lot of them, wherever they come from, particularly young young people. They just want to eat Sichuanese. So you've got this kind of captive market of Chinese people. And once the Sichuanese restaurants are there, every other sort of person goes in and falls in love with the food. And there you go. So the hallmarks of Sichuanese food are mostly related to spice and heat and mala and things like that. Yeah, well, the the stereotype is that it's all about heat and numbing Sichuan peppercorns. But Sichuanese chefs and Sichuanese food aficionados will always say it's not just about heat. And the thing about Sichuanese food is the thrilling variety. And um, there's a saying in Sichuanese that which means each dish has its own style and a hundred dishes have a hundred different flavors. So it's true that quite a lot of the flavor combinations of Sichuan are hot, like mala, numbing and hot, and yuxiang, fish fragrant, a gentler heat from pickled chilies with ginger, garlic and scallion, a bit of sweet and sour. But there are also quite a lot of flavors that are not hot at all, like xian xianwei, which is salt savory flavor, or um, li zhiwei, lychee flavor, a kind of sweet and sour. So a good Sichuanese dinner shouldn't all be sort of blast your head off spicy. It should be a sort of very exciting journey of highs and lows. <laughs> there is an eater editor who I will not name to protect the potentially guilty who um, I I recently shared a, a Sichuanese meal with. And he was saying that he thinks that all of the Sichuanese food in New York is atrocious, that it's basically just Hunanese food that has had a ton of spice thrown on top of it and that there's no nuance and that you know, sort of like idiot New Yorkers just don't really know what it is that they're not eating and are thrilled. And I, maybe it's not just New Yorkers. I mean, I think that, that Sichuanese food is everywhere in the U.S. It is this extraordinarily dominant thing. Why do you think it is that it rose in China as the cuisine of the moment? 
Well, I think it was just sort of, you know, it's an exciting cuisine, you know, and people had, certainly when I first lived in China in the 1990s, the prestige cuisine was Cantonese and that's what people went out, you know, for a special dinner. But um, I don't know, I guess Sichuanese food is dynamic, exciting, and it's sort of, you know, maybe part of a society that's really on the move and rapid change and people moving around the country. And I suppose also that... Um, you know, it's easy to create a sensation with lots of piles of chilies and Sichuan pepper. And, uh, you know, what your friend was talking about, that um, because Sichuanese cooking is so popular now, you do get people from other regions. Like in London, we have people from the Dongbei, northeast. And the whole menu is full of Sichuanese-style dishes, really, um, but not necessarily, as, as you just suggested, as subtle and nuanced as you know, real Sichuanese cooking. And there's, a, you know, quite a lot of Sichuanese chefs now lament the fact that the dishes that have become the sort of international smash, smash hits are things like la zhiji, the Chongqing chicken in a great pile of chilies, shui zhu yu, that sort of um, slippery sliced fish in a great cauldron of sizzling chili oil. And they're certainly part of Sichuanese cuisine, but they're not the only part. And people think maybe they shouldn't be taken to represent the whole... And also that kind of that kind of cooking doesn't require very high culinary skills. So oh. it doesn't require very expensive ingredients. You know, you can just create drama very easily. And probably a lot of people, you know, restaurateurs, they just want to, you know, have a business. They're not necessarily committed to Sichuanese gastronomy. Oh, create <laughs> drama. I love that as a way to talk about something like that. I'm, I'm going to steal that, Fuchsia. That's such a good <laughs> idea for building a dish. Um, and I guess That's this a is... very a non... <laughs> I was saying that's a very non-cynical way of approaching what I think is fundamentally a fairly cynical reality, which is just, mm -hmm. you know, how can we get the maximum effect for the minimum of labor and resources? I guess this is as good a time as any to introduce our guest on the Eater Upsell today, Fuchsia Dunlop. My gosh, have we not done that yet? No. Fuchsia Dunlop. We just <laughs> got down a rabbit hole of talking about food, but... Uh, Fuchsia Dunlop is an author. You've probably seen her books in the cookbook section of your favorite bookstore. Uh, most recent is The Land of Fish and Rice, Recipes from the Culinary Heart of China. Um, you might have also seen Every Grain of Rice and the OG Land of Plenty slash Sichuan Cookery, depending on which side of the Atlantic you're on. Welcome, uh, welcome to the show, Fuchsia. Hi, it's great to be with you today. You also wrote a memoir that I loved called Shark's Fin and Szechuan Peppercorn. Yeah, which... Fuchsia's, Fuchsia's adventures in eating Chinese food over about 20 years. <laughs> it, was, it was a phenomenally influential book for me. I think that um, the way that you write about food in particular is is very rare to find someone who who is able to write about the actual food itself, not just the world around it, with such detail and nuance. It was a, it's a real pleasure. I highly recommend if anybody listening has not read Fuchsia's memoir, pick it up. It's fantastic. Thank you very much. Did you always plan to be a food writer? No, not at all. In fact, um, if you'd told me at the age of about 18 or 20 that I was going to be any kind of writer, I would have laughed at you because I was so terribly lazy about handing in essays at school and at college. I mean, that's the classic hallmark <laughs> of a writer, right? You were blowing deadlines from an early age. Yeah. We should have seen it coming. And I found it so stressful. But I did always want to do, well... Since I was about 11, definitely wanted to do something to do with food. So, you know, I could have turned out to be a restaurant chef. Instead, I've managed to mix it up with writing. But, um, yeah, definitely the ambition to do something edible. Did you grow up in a household where food was a big deal? Did you, like, did your family cook? Did you? Yeah, my mother's a great cook and she was very, very adventurous for sort of 1970s Britain. Um, she was always cooking international food. She taught English as a foreign language in Oxford, where I grew up. So we always had foreign students living with us as part of the family, a Japanese girl at one point, a Spaniard and a Turk at another point, Italians. And they would all sort of cook from time to time. And my mother's students would come home and cook special dinners. And they would kind of leave recipes that became part of the family repertoire. And um, my father, 
father has always enjoyed doing slightly crazy cooking, like making preposterous architectural cakes on special occasions or enormous pork pies or, you know, flamboyantly dyed <laughs> foods. Like showpiece food. Showpiece food, yeah. And then my brother and sister and I all grew up cooking. So it's always been something fun and just natural, like breathing. You know, you just cook to eat and to live. Growing up, was it fun to have all these, you know, people lodging with you, all these like foreign exchange students? Or were you like, mom, this is... <laughs> This is weird. No, I think we all enjoyed it. And I think, um, you know, my brother and sister and I, we all enjoy talking to all kinds of people and we're very used to dealing with cultural differences. No, definitely. I think it was a huge influence on all of us. I think it's so special to be able to have that kind of global perspective as a child. It's, I think, rare for people to have such immediate access to the diversity of culture in the world especially as a kid. Yeah, maybe unusual to have such variety at an intimate level, like yeah. in your home. Yeah. Um, but um... I, I, I haven't heard that much lately about the whole idea of foreign exchange students. It used to be a huge thing. I mean, it was the coolest thing possible. I remember in elementary school, junior high, when a family down the block would get a, would host a foreign exchange student for the year. And it was like so Yeah, definitely neat. every American sitcom has one, you know, that was made in the 80s or 90s, I feel like. but It was a cheap source of xenophobic humor. Yes. So how did you end up in China? Well, um, after graduating from university, I did English literature and I carried on cooking very enthusiastically through that period. Um, I got a job as a sub-editor for a publication that was all about Asia-Pacific region. So I was just reading all this stuff about the Asia-Pacific and I got drawn into China and fascinated by it. And then I decided to go there on holiday. So I went backpacking around China and was really fascinated and smitten. And I came back and signed up for evening classes in Mandarin in London and um, it sort of went on from there. So it wasn't like a decision to commit my life to China, but I got more and more interested and then applied for a British Council scholarship. And um, when it came to choose where in China to study, um, I chose Sichuan University in Chengdu. And um, it was partly for very legitimate reasons, you know, very culturally interesting regions sort of on the fringes, on the edge of Han Chinese China and bordering Tibet and all these fascinating minority areas. But also because I was very into food and <laughs> I'd been once to Chengdu and had in particular one fabulous lunch, but I'd eaten very fascinating food. And, um, you know, I knew that Sichuan was supposed to be the headquarters of one of China's great cuisines. And I thought it would be a very nice place to live. And it was. This is a slightly bizarre question. But in all of my prep for our interview today, I could not find anywhere where you live. I live in London. It's so interesting. It feels almost like a notable omission. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I live in London. So you live in London. How, how much time do you spend in China? Well, I tend to make at least two long trips there every year for a month or more. And, um, you know, this year it's been three trips, so three, three months or more in China. So I, I go there quite a lot. Are there particular cities or regions that you tend to return to over and over? Well, for this book, so I've been working on this latest book for about 10 years on and off. And Not so, much time at all. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, too, I've, I've gone repeatedly, you know, through Shanghai into the lower Yangtze region to Hangzhou and Shaoxing and Yangzhou and all these fascinating places. Um, and I also love going back to my old stamping ground, Chengdu, to see my friends there and eat the wonderful food. Um, but I also do try to explore new places. So um, I, I always try on every trip to visit somewhere I haven't been before because there's so much to learn. You know, I'm just constantly expanding my knowledge and um, constantly sort of being reminded of what a vast, endless subject Chinese food and gastronomy is. One thing that really struck me about your your current, your latest book, Land of Fish and Rice. Um, you mentioned in the introduction, and I noticed that the book is also dedicated to the staff of a restaurant called Dragonwell Manor. And um, you're describing it in the intro as a restaurant where the, the chef takes an extraordinary amount of pride in sourcing the best possible ingredients from local farms and working with local artisans to find, you know, sort of products that are made with integrity and cooking in the kitchen in a way that takes no shortcuts and, and, that sounds so 
incredibly on trend for the way that like modern Brooklyn cooking or like the sort of hipster culinary movement in the U.S. is moving. And it was remarkable to sort of see that very long line connecting what's happening here in cuisine with the, the food that you're talking about in this it is absolutely and what what Dai Jianjun the owner of the Longjing Tang, the Dragonwell Manor in Hangzhou is doing is completely remarkable and really resonates with what people like Chez Panisse and Stone Barns are doing with their sourcing of ingredients and their cooking um, but the thing about China is that in modern China it's quite a radical statement you know at a time of sort of rapid industrial industrialization and urbanization to do this is quite a remarkable feat. Um, but it also has its roots in ancient Chinese culture because China really was the original foodie culture. And people over the centuries have written about food. Um, there's a, a, a sort of Song Dynasty, which is say 12th, 13th century cookbook by a man called Lin Hong, um, which I, I think reads a bit like something that could have been written by, you know, um, Rene Rezepi of Noma in Copenhagen. You know, it's very esoteric, lyrically titled dishes, foraged ingredients, a sort of um, interest in, in closeness to nature. So, um, you know, Chinese gourmets through the centuries, through the ages, have been very concerned about the provenance of their ingredients with eating things in the right seasons. Um, so, yeah, it's both very ancient and very contemporary. I, that sort of lyrical dish titling seems to be a hallmark of a certain kind of maybe somewhat orientalist American view, or maybe it's British too, like a sort of Western view of Eastern food, this idea of, you know, dishes with these exotic, beautiful, poetic names, which I suppose is is what they are in fact called in Chinese, but it's become somewhat reductive in English-speaking culture. And I noticed that throughout the cookbook, you, you largely avoid that kind of naming. These are fairly straightforwardly named recipes. Mm, well, well, sort of, there are a mixture, but some, you know, there are dishes like Dongpo pork, which is named after a poet of the Song Dynasty. And, um, you know, the, the poetic, I think there's the spiced wheat gluten with four delights. I mean, right. that's a sort of slightly lyrical name. But I think in China, it's just that, you know, food is so much part of culture and um, talking about food, intellectualizing it, the sort of pleasure that you get from a witticism in the name of a dish or a cultural reference is part of the pleasure of food. And I think it's just a mark of a very sort of developed and sophisticated gastronomic culture. Is that something that you don't see in British or American culinary culture? I don't think quite to the same extent. I mean, of course, in, in British, but I mean, Britain is a tiny little country compared with China. Sure. China is <laughs> China is a continent. But, you know, we all have, you know, we all have dishes with, with stories attached to them and perhaps unusual names that require some explanation. But in China, and particularly in the Jiangnan, Lower Yangtze region. Which is the region your book covers. Yeah, there are so many dishes um, that are tied up with sort of legends about the Qianlong Emperor's visits to the Romantic south of China in the late 18th century and the banquets he ate there and the times when he went out incognito to mingle with his subjects and stumbled upon some delicious dish. And there are other dishes that are named after, like there's a pickled vegetable in Shaoxing that's named after a poor servant girl who was um, trying to nourish her colleagues in, in a grand household of a miser. And she devised this delicious pickle with sort of slightly wilted vegetables. And um, her master ended up beating her to death, her cruel oh. master. Yes, and, and the pickle bears her name. And there are other dishes <laughs> that are associated with impoverished scholars or with um, you know people who made accidental discoveries. And it's all just part of the richness and pleasure of, of eating Chinese food. So when you were learning for the first time um, how to cook in the style in Chengdu, what, was, what did you have difficulty with? Was there anything that you were like, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to figure this out? Well, I suppose that, so that was in 1995 when I enrolled as a student at the Sichuan Institute of Higher Cuisine. And so I'd been living in Chengdu already for a year, but suddenly I was flung into this environment where I was one of only three women and the only foreigner in a class of about 50 young Sichuanese men. 
and it was all taught in Sichuanese dialect. The um, textbooks were in Chinese characters. And of course, although I could speak everyday Chinese by that stage, um, the specialist vocabulary of the Chinese kitchen is most particular, and I hadn't learned it before. So it was a very steep learning curve. But of course, with cooking, because there are practical aspects and you can see your teachers demonstrating things, it was possible to sort of get stuck in there and, and learn very quickly. But um, I suppose there are a few culture shocks, like the fact that some of our ingredients were alive, like the <laughs> fish and the eels. Um, but no, I mean, I really remember it as being a tremendously fun and inspiring period of my life. You know, the, it, the food there was so delicious and it's just, I really wanted to learn how to make it. <laughs> so for a book like this one, which is a, an extraordinarily comprehensive volume, I mean, this is several hundred recipes in here, right? What's the process like for... But I imagine it's very anthropological to sort of, you know, find the recipes and research their histories and, and speak with people. I mean, it's, it seems like investigative reporting almost. Yeah, a bit. I mean, because I, I like to put the recipes in their cultural and historical context. So, you know, I travel around the region and I'm writing in my notebooks all the time observations about food and I'm reading books about food and going to look at museums and seeing the sort of food-related artifacts they have there. And, um, I suppose, and then spending time in kitchens. So it's, uh, yeah, I mean, there's not really one way to do it, but I suppose I like to um, get to a point where I feel a real sense of connection with a place and I have friends there and I kind of love it and want to write about it. And um, then there's the, the whole sort of huge challenge of deciding which recipes to put into a book. And, you know, this region is so rich. You could write an encyclopedia about the cooking of this region. There are so many potential recipes. But, of course, um, writing a book that's meant to introduce it to Western readers, um, you can't have all the recipes made with, like, hairy crabs or um, freshwater shrimp or very esoteric wild vegetables that you couldn't get here. So it's trying to get a compromise between giving people authentic recipes, um, which they can make at home you know and sort of how far how far do you push your readers to be adventurous and how much do you want things to be familiar and I think it's all about trying to to get a balance how do you find that balance I mean I think that that is probably the central tension of a book like this where you're speaking to readers who might not be familiar with any of the context or history around the foods let alone you know some of the basic cooking implements that are required to make it well, I suppose that, I mean, I don't think there is one perfect solution and there's not one way of doing it. This is just the way I've done it on, on you know, this occasion. But I think the wonderful thing about cookery writing is that, um, you know, you don't just have the recipes. You can use the head notes and the introductions to chapters to broaden the subject and describe some of the foods, some of the recipes that you haven't put in the book. Um, so that, um, you know, the recipes, what I've tried to do is get them to represent lots of different facets of a very complex gastronomic culture. So I've got, um, you know, some farmhouse dishes, street food, um, some very easy dishes, one or two of what they would call kung fu dishes, gong fu tai, which require quite complicated and labor intensive techniques. But it's trying to show people as many different sides of the cuisine and get them interested and then hope that people will travel more to the region and experience it for themselves. And also just sort of tried to put this region on the map because it is one of the great gastronomic regions of China and it's remarkably overlooked in the West. Are there I, any gastronomic regions of China that are not great? Um, I think that um, because China is a very food-obsessed society, um, you can go anywhere and find new and interesting ways of cooking and eating. But some regions are richer than others, you know, in the south of China, you have more ingredients. I mean, it's just an area of stunning biodiversity. You know, so many different vegetables and creatures and, uh, you know, f even flowers and insects in the far southwest in Yunnan province, for example. Um, but I think that the thing that sets the Jiangnan region apart is that um, it's been such a kind of foodie culture and there's such a rich literature of food. 
And um, it was a very prosperous region. It still is, actually. But it was the centre of the southern Chinese economy. And you had all the most sort of sophisticated people and emperors falling in love with it. And um, many members of the literati, it's often talked about as the cuisine of the literati. Um, so just that it has everything from sort of hearty peasant cooking and street food to very esoteric banquet cooking. And I think that's what what one thinks of a, a really rich culinary culture, that it exists on so many different levels. So why is it, do you think, that it didn't become as known in Western culture as other regional cuisines of China have? I think that um, for a long time, Cant Cantonese cooking dominated Western perceptions of Chinese cuisine. And that was just a matter of immigration. You know, the huge waves of immigrants from the Cantonese south of China brought their food traditions and sort of set the tone of Chinese cooking in the West. And then in recent years, you know, we've talked about Sichuanese cooking. It's been a great fashion in China and it's taking over China and the world. And this region, um, there hasn't been the same mass wave of immigrants taking their flavors and opening restaurants in the West. Um, it's also a more subtle cuisine. So it's not as easy, you know, we've talked about you can fling a bunch of chilies and Sichuan pepper and call it Sichuanese. This cuisine is less easy to stereotype and sum up in a word or two. Um, and also perhaps it's more difficult to do well. You know, you do need good ingredients. It's a bit subtler like that. And one other reason is that um, it's been known... Um, you know, people have often often talk in terms of the four great cuisines of China, and it's widely recognised that this region in the east is home to one of the great regional styles. But it's been known by quite a confusing variety of names. So you may notice that sometimes people talk about Huayang cooking. So that's one word for it. Sometimes people talk about Shanghainese cuisine, and Shanghai is the best known city in the region. But it's also a kind of modern upstart city and doesn't really represent the rich ancient culture. And sometimes people talk about Su cooking, Jiangsu provincial cooking. Okay, we're just taking a quick break here to remind you that this episode of The Eater Upsell is presented by MailChimp. MailChimp has been around since 2001. The company started as a side project funded by various web development jobs, and now it's the world's leading email marketing platform. MailChimp, send better email, sell more stuff. And now back to the rest of our chat. What is your recipe development process like? I mean, you've done several of these books now, and I'm just kind of curious if that how that process has evolved and if it's changed. Like, what is do you get feedback? Do you do you test it? Test the recipes from, you know, your friends in China that that understand the cuisine or is it, you know, testing it for maybe somebody who hasn't cooked like this before? Um, well, what I do is I try and taste as many different versions of a dish as I can in China. And um, if possible, go into as many kitchens as possible and see how people make it and discuss the method with chefs. So I've got notebooks filled with observations and comments and, you know, notes taken in Chinese kitchens. And then I will usually check some written recipes, although they're not, they're often a bit vague or that, I mean, I wouldn't just go on a written recipe. So I kind of look at all these different versions and look at my notes and come up with a strategy. And then I will try to make the dish and see how it goes really. And sometimes a dish will taste just as I want it to taste and accurate to my memories of the dish in China the first time. And sometimes it takes a lot longer. And sometimes I will have an issue. And in the past, I used to just make great lists of questions. And then this was before email when I did my first book, I would go to China every year or so with a whole list of questions and corner a few chefs and ask them and try to get answers. But now it's very easy because I'm on social media. What were some of the questions you would ask? Like, you know, like technique or about like flavor? Yeah, technique, technique, ingredients, substitutions, issues that I'd come up with in making a recipe, things that didn't quite work out. But um, but now it's so easy because I'm on social media with lots of Chinese chefs. So I can literally be in my kitchen and text someone and say, 
by the way, do you normally add the soy sauce at this stage or that stage? And then like three Chinese chefs will reply <laughs> within an hour. <laughs> so it's quite amazing that the, the whole, the sort of internet, the way the internet has changed the way I do recipes. But anyway, so I test them and I, I do sometimes give them to friends from the region to taste and get their approval. But, um, but also I think I know when I'm on the right track, really. How many rounds will you go through with testing for these for the for the books I just until it's right yeah and and that's one of the things that's very complicated and troublesome about testing recipes because you can't really plan for it you can't say okay I'll complete these five recipes this week because one of them might not work and then you have to keep trying so um yeah there's no rule on that at all with the new book what was the recipe that was the hardest for you to crack or that took the longest to, to sort of develop Ooh. Let me have a think about it. Oh, well, I think some of the pastries, so for example, the, the xiaolongbao, the steamed soup dumplings, and the shengjian, the potsticker buns. So with those, there are lots of different opinions and lots of different versions. So I think those for me were the most challenging. Sort of from a textural point of view or like, was it more the flavor? Or? Well, because you... You've got so many elements. So with the xiaolongbao, the soup dumplings, you want to get skins that um, are nice and tender, but which are strong enough to hold the soup and the stuffing within. And um, with the stuffing, you want to get the right proportion of the jellied stock that makes the soup and a good flavor for the stuffing. And um, then, yeah, so it's just sort of several elements, but in particular, just getting the right sort of dough. And there are lots of different ways of doing this. You know, do you add, do you make the dough with hot water or with cold water with a proportion of each? You know, it's, it's, it's a bit technical. People definitely seem to obsess over uh, soup dumplings and buns everywhere, it seems. I mean... Yeah, well, they are addictively delicious. <laughs> and they're so elegant and dainty. They're kind of fun to eat. You wrote a, an article not too long ago for The Telegraph about the way that Chinese cuisine has been changing in restaurants in London. Um, is And it sounds a lot like an echo of the way that I think it's been changing here in the U.S., which is this sort of increased interest in regionalism and that incredibly slippery and often destructive notion of authenticity, which I think can sometimes result in a certain kind of calcification. But it seems really exciting that that London is also kind of opening up its affection for the true Chinese food. Yeah, and I, I just think it's, you know, China really does have the, the world's most complex and diverse and sophisticated cuisine viewed overall. And it has for so long been drastically, grievously underestimated in the West. And so it's wonderful to see that, you know, people in the West are changing their opinions about it. I mean, starting from this point of diversity, you know, Chinese food isn't just about Cantonese style. It's not just about takeout. And um, so even though we are, we're only seeing the beginning of the regionalizations, I mean, there are countless other specialities, little regions and places that you could taste. But, um, you know, already in New York, I've tasted, you know, Dongbei, Northeastern food, Hunanese food, Fujianese food, food from Xi'an in the north where the terracotta warriors are. Um, and it just kind of, it really serves to break up that notion that you can really talk about Chinese cuisine as if it was one cuisine. Earlier um, in our conversation, you mentioned somewhat offhandedly the idea that familiarizing people with the cuisines of particular reasons or particular regions might encourage them to visit there. How much do you sort of see the, the connection between becoming familiar with this type of food and just sort of actual sort of hop on a plane tourism? Well, I think with Sichuanese food very much. Like I know that my old cooking school in Sichuan now does short courses for foreigners. Mm -hmm. And I have personally met and communicated with quite a lot of people who've gone there and done sort of two week courses, two month courses. And um yeah, and more and more people do go to Sichuan to eat this famous Sichuanese cuisine. And I think also just, um, you know, all over the world that people from cosmopolitan areas of the West want a local food experience to be part of their travel experience. And, um, and I think, you know, one problem with China is that if you don't speak Chinese, it can be quite 
um, sort of intimidating, like where do you begin? Where do you go to eat? How do you order? What are the dishes on the menu? Because even if the dishes are translated, the names translated into English, it's often done very badly or hilariously sometimes. <laughs> um, but And the other thing is that, you know, with Chinese food, it's one thing having dumplings and noodles, which are very easy to order. But to order a Chinese meal, you really need to have a nice variety of dishes. You want to have different colours and textures and cooking methods to create a sort of organic whole. And it's actually very difficult to do that if you don't really have any idea about what the dishes will be like when you order them. So I think that it's possible for Western tourists to go to China and just you know, with the intention of eating the local cuisine, but to find it very difficult to actually get get a handle on how to do it. Do you have any tips like for just like uh, approaching a restaurant that you don't know, like a Chinese restaurant or I guess any restaurant, but that's a restaurant you just don't know anything about, um, like what to order or even necessarily the cuisine? Well, I suppose that, I mean, one thing you can always do is look at what people are having on other tables. I mean, I think that's a really good, if you can do that without being too rude. <laughs> but, and then, you Quite know, point, yeah. ask, ask, ask the waiter to have some of that, please. Um, so that's one thing you can do. Um, I think it's, it's quite hard with a language barrier because not only might you not be able to communicate well with a Chinese-speaking waiter or waitress, but also it's very difficult for them to gauge how far you want to go because, you know, Chinese people will know that Many Westerners don't want to eat some weird ingredients or offal that they consider strange. Um, but the fact is that quite a lot of Western foodie people do want to try these things now. But it's difficult. You know, Chinese a Chinese waiter might be afraid of giving offence by ordering something that you might not like. And so it's very easy for them to sort of err on the safe side. Like I find even, you know, going to... Even when I'm in China with a group of foreigners ordering for a table, um, I often, and I'm ordering in fluent Chinese with knowledge of the food, I often get told by the waiter or waitress, oh, no, 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 you mustn't order that. They won't like it. Have instead the sweet and sour pork. And I have to really <laughs> insist and say, no, we're not like normal foreigners. We're just going to eat everything. And then I order these dishes and we do eat everything and they're suitably amazed. <laughs> It is interesting, especially given, you know, as we've mentioned, the sort of current hot button issue of authenticity that you have become, I think, in, in many senses, the one of the foremost ambassadors of regional Chinese cooking to a Western readership. And you're not Chinese. You're a white woman. Have you run into obstacles because of that? Um no, not really. I mean, I'm very aware that it's a really weird position to be in. <laughs> and I guess I sort of expect obstacles. But in China, you know, I've just had such a warm welcome and so much encouragement. And it really feels like a collaboration. Like I'm just working with people who I respect and who have immense knowledge and skill. And um, they you know, they might be fantastic chefs, but they don't have the English language skills to express and describe what they're doing for an English audience. So it, it's quite a symbiotic relationship. And I think we work together very well. Um, I suppose in the West, sometimes it feels very strange. Like I remember when I went to the Sydney Food Festival and I was giving a talk. And of course, Sydney is a really Chinese city because so many, you know, people, Chinese people who've been there for many generations. And I was giving a talk with an audience with lots of people who were Chinese. And for me, that was a bit of a culture shock. And actually, it was quite funny because after my talk, um, a couple of Chinese Sydney, Chinese Australians came up and said, you know, we have to admit that we were very sceptical and a bit cross when we saw that an English woman was going to be talking about Chinese food. But, you know, we learned a lot and we appreciate your your interest and enthusiasm. So I find that, um, yeah, in the end, in the end, I just, you know, I think that my Chinese chef friends and I, we're just all very interested in the same thing. And I don't sit there thinking, they're Chinese and I'm English and we're fundamentally different. We're just friends and we have a shared interest and we do this thing together and it's fun. Do you think that uh, you would ever want to write a book or, you know, work on any major project that was outside of that region of, uh, you know, regional Chinese food or like, you know, would you ever want to explore either, I don't know, some other type of cuisine, either one that you knew intimately growing up or, or otherwise? 
Well, I remember, um, you know, when I wrote my Hunan cookbook, my second cookbook, it was a really tough time for me because I was feeling a bit sort of isolated. I went to live in Hunan and it was during the SARS epidemic and I felt very lonely and cut off. And um, there were moments when this friend of mine in Beijing would say, Fuchsia, don't you think it's time you wrote a Tuscan cookbook? (laughs) Wouldn't it be easier? But I suppose that the thing is, I am still completely fascinated and gripped by Chinese cuisine. I'm never going to get to the bottom of it. I'm always learning. And also having spent so many years, you know, learning a very difficult language, learning the language of gastronomy, learning about it, um, I, I can't see a point where I would want to put that aside and then start learning another language because I'm never going to finish with Chinese food. And I suppose as long as it's interesting, and it is always going to be interesting, and I'm never going to finish learning about it. So, yeah, I think I'm stuck with Chinese. <laughs> I'm just curious, what is your relationship like in... Okay, so, you know, you're in New York, which I think has a pretty deep and interesting history of Chinese-American cuisine, especially in Manhattan's Chinatown. Do you do you like that stuff? Does that stuff interest you? Like, you know, kind of diminishing a little bit, but like the Wohops and the Hop Keys and places like that. I think I am interested in everything to do with Chinese food. Um, so that, yes, it's interesting. And I'm also theoretically interested in just the idea of Chinese diaspora cooking and the way it's different in different countries. Like I haven't been to India, but I know they have their versions of Chinese cuisine there. So, you know, yes, I'm interested, but um, I'm more interested by China, you know, or rather there's enough to occupy me there. I'm not looking for other subjects outside China to mm-hmm. capture my attention. Well, Fuchsia, we have come to the portion of our interview that we call the lightning round. In which time, Greg and I will ask you a bunch of questions and you can just answer them however you like. So the first question for you in the lightning round is what is the secret to peaceful international travel on a long haul flight? Peaceful, international. Well, peaceful for like you personally. Like, how do you? How, what? What's your secret for surviving in more or less one piece a very long flight from, say, London to Shanghai? Uh, enough food, a few snacks, so that I don't get hungry along the way. <laughs> do you bring your own snacks, or do you rely on the airport to provide them for you? No, I bring a few snacks. What do you bring? Um, probably some biscuits because they're easy to transport. Some fruit some dried fruit, maybe a bit of chocolate. That always works. No medications. The best thing is to take a really good thriller. If you can find a book that will absolutely grip you um, for the course of the flight, but it's not easy to do because, you know, you have to know before you get on the plane that it's going to grip you. What have been some of your favourites? Well, I remember actually reading The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo on one flight to China. And um, that I just sort of, I think I read the whole thing on the flight. That's perfect. Speaking of books, <laughs> lightning round question number two, what are your three Desert Island cookbooks? You could only have these books for the rest of your life. These could be the only ones. What would they be? And they can't be yours. And they can't be yours. Well, there's one that I'm very sentimentally attached to, which is Leith's Cookery Course um, by Prue Leith and Caroline Wardergrave. And it's a sort of handbook of foundation cooking skills. I was given it when I was 11 years old and it was my sort of inspiration and my manual throughout my teenage years. I'm guessing on my desert island, I'm not going to have a kitchen, not actually going to be able to use these books. So it's I might a pretty as well... unusual desert island, actually, where there is a kitchen and a grocery store. <laughs> and but no you have ingredients. Source. Yeah. OK, well, um, I love Fergus Henderson's book, um, Nose to Tail Eating. Oh, yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, I think that the complete edition, there's a com- I think it's called The Complete Nose to Tail, a compilation of both. I love his writing and I love his recipes. And I also adore Marcella Hazan's Italian recipes because they they work, they're not overcomplicated, and the food is just really excellent. That's great. Although I'm not a fan of that tomato sauce everyone loves from that book for some reason. It's so antithetical to Sacrilege. what I Sacrilege. I know. I, I just think it's it's just too rich for me. But anyway, I, I, I should explore more, I suppose. Greg, I'm <laughs> horrified by you. But if I'm allowed a food book that's not a cookery book, sure. then I would take the complete works of MFK Fisher because I just think she is the ultimate food writer. Yes. All right. Lightning round question number. I can't remember which number we're on, but okay, Fuchsia, you're in um, a car. You're 
racing down the freeway. You're by yourself. The music is blasting and you're singing along to it. What are you singing along to? Ella Fitzgerald. I love those old Cole Porter songs and they're great Excellent. fun to sing along to. As long as I no love one's that listening. answer. I can totally <laughs> picture you doing that. That's so fantastic. Well, Fuchsia, our last lightning round question for you is what advice would you give to someone who wants to have your life? <gasps> Goodness me. Um, <laughs> I feel very, very lucky to be doing something that I love. And I think it's just been a combination of sort of serendipity, like being in China at a remarkable moment when it was beginning to open up and um, when doing things like as a foreigner going to a Chinese cooking school was suddenly possible, possibly maybe for the first time ever. Um, so a combination of serendipity and, and, and some work and, um, and some luck. And um, it's kind of unrepeatable. But I suppose that, um, yeah, I, I suppose that I have done things just because I'm interested in them without always having a very clear sort of motive for doing them. And I think that um, doing things with your whole heart, particularly with writing, you know, writing things that you really feel need to be written, that you really want to write and not trying too hard, really. And, and I think that, um, yeah, there's, there's so many, so many words in the world. And I suppose I, I think that, you know, you want to write things that are deeply felt and which are honestly written and written with some integrity. So, yeah, I would, I would say sort of try to do things with your whole heart and try to do them honestly. Awesome inspiration. Yeah. Fuchsia, thank you so much for coming by the Eater Upsell. Your latest cookbook, Land of Fish and Rice, is available everywhere. And where can our listeners find you on Twitter or Instagram or anywhere else on the wider internet? Oh, well, it's very easy. I'm at Fuchsia Dunlop on Twitter. Um, I'm Fuchsia Dunlop on Instagram. I have a website which I've been very lazy about keeping up, but it's there. And I also have a Facebook page, which I post things Fantastic. on Fantastic. Fuchsia, thanks for being here. Thank you very much. Oh my gosh, Helen, we've made it to the end of the episode, which reminds me that the Eater Upsell is presented by MailChimp. I and love MailChimp. Yeah, it's pretty great. And, uh, you know, 14 million people use MailChimp to connect with their customers, market their products, and grow their e-commerce business every day. And they take us to the end of the Eater Upsell. The Eater Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media Studios in New York and Los Angeles. Your hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and that other guy over there, Greg Morabito. Our producers are Maureen Giannone and Patrick Balder. Our editor and associate producer is Daniel Janine. Our associate editorial producer is Kendra Vaculin. Our studio ops team is Alex Ulreich and Miles Yule. Our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. And the most important person involved in the creation of this entire crazy rodeo is you, dear listener. You. Thank you for being exactly who you are.